This is The Burning Zone. I'm Coleman Luck. Kings and queens or slaves, two views of humanity that have come down to us from the most ancient sources. So which are we? From the mighty empire of Babylon comes one answer, and from the wilderness under a pillar of fire and smoke comes another. But most amazing of all, which one we are depends on our choice. A new kind of slavery is coming, and the world is being prepared for its arrival. Jim Covell has commented, I'm not sure exactly what he meant, but he said, he said that these Bible studies have a sort of creepy side. He told me that. <laughs> there's, there's kind of a little bit of creepy side about some of the things we talk about here. I know I see some of you going where you've never been here before. You're like, what? How could that be? You'll find out soon. I mean, we are living, we're living in creepy times. Things are getting creepier and creepier everywhere. If you haven't noticed that, I don't know where you're living. I'm sure you have noticed it. Last month, we spent some time talking about a very creepy topic, something called transhumanism and the incredible scientific advancements that are being made in the frightening area of genetic and technological manipulation of human life. Predictions by those involved in the research point toward an amazing and very frightening set of facts. Uh, the advancements that are being made will seriously impact all of our lives. Scientists involved in that research believe that uh, this is the next step in human evolution, a step in which we take on the role of God and recreate ourselves to make us exponentially healthier, far more long-lived and stronger and smarter. I could certainly use some of that myself. This will be accomplished in a number of ways, but in particular by the splicing of the genes of other species with those of humans. The reality of this research is causing a major conversation to take place uh, involved with all the philosophers and ethicists and the scientists who are at work. The question that they are asking is this. Uh, the question is just exactly what is a human being? At what point in genetic manipulation does the product stop being human and become something else? These are not uh, sort of theoretical questions. These are going to be questions that are going to impact our lives and the lives of our children in the days and the months, decades that are in front of us. As I'm sure you're aware, while all of this has been going on, there's been another philosophy that meshes right into it. At the core of radical environmentalism is the idea that humans are just part of a great ecosystem of Gaia, Mother Earth, and as, as a species, we are no more entitled to treatment that is special than a worm or a toad. Indeed, all other species need to be protected from us. The world would be a better place, in the opinion of these people, if we cease to exist. And the very, at the very least, we need to cut down from our current six billion people down to one or two. Now, the process of cutting down is not a pretty one. There is even a movement afoot to give trees and animals the same legal standing in court as people. Did you read about that? If I recall correctly, that is happening right now in Brazil. And you're going to see it happen in many parts of the world. Here in the U.S., the trend started decades ago when governmental agencies became far more concerned about the welfare of rats and fish than about people. The operative philosophy is the same. There is nothing special about humanity. Christians face a dilemma in confronting such attitudes. We believe that we need to be good stewards of the earth, and certainly as a race we haven't lived up to that. 
But to support the major environmental and ecological movements is to buy into their anti-human philosophies, and that cannot be permitted. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about where these anti-human philosophies originated, but that's not possible tonight. If you would like to do more research in this area, I would suggest that you go to an organization called the Spiritual Counterfeits Project. If you look them up on the internet, you're going to find an interesting organization. They've done, in the past several years, several extensively researched articles on the so-called Earth Movement and all of its foundations. This instructive view of humanity depends on one presupposition, that the book of Genesis is untrue, that it is just one of many creation myths and man isn't made in the image of Almighty God, the ruler of the universe, as Genesis claims. It is my belief that establishing this presupposition as accepted fact is a vital part of what I would call the end game being played out right now by Satan and what we have called in this Bible study his great lords of darkness. For this purpose, and because this is part of the end game, the authorship and authority of the book of Genesis has been under attack for 200 years. We're not going to go into the nature of what that attack has been, but we could go into it and spend a lot of time going back into Germany and to the theologians and the scholars there who did a wonderful job of eviscerating the entire Bible, but especially the book of Genesis. Over the past few decades, there's been a new strange twist to this attack. And I think it's important that we be aware of it. Briefly stated, the argument goes like this. The creation myth of Genesis is not original. It is simply derivative of a far older Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish. In the minds of many Sumerian scholars, since Genesis is derivative in their opinion, obviously it cannot be authoritative. Now it's true that there are some striking similarities between Genesis and the Enuma Elish. But ultimately, the gulf that divides those two, those two documents is infinite. And that gulf is between how the two accounts deal with the creation and purpose of the human race. Here's the way the story goes in the Enuma Elish. Eons ago, the many gods who lived on Earth were working hard. In fact, they were working too hard. For thousands of years, they had been mining minerals and building and doing all sorts of back-breaking labor, and they became sick of it collectively. So they decided to create a race of intelligent slaves who would do the work for them. The creatures would be two-thirds animal and one-third god. So they sacrificed one of their own number, mixing his body and blood with that of other creatures. You know, they did this, they created, they created the human race. That is where the Enuma Elish says we came from. We are the resultant slave race, beings just smart enough and strong enough to do the heavy lifting for our celestial masters. Sometime after we were formed, so the Enuma Elish goes, a huge war broke out between the gods. The earth was destroyed and many of the gods were killed. Human civilization had to reboot, so to speak, and grow again slowly over thousands of years from the few people left after that war to a global population of slaves ready once more to serve their masters. Compare that to the book of Genesis. God created man in his own image. For what purpose? The famous Westminster Catechism says it so well. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose for the creation of humanity? The answer? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Garden of Eden was not a place of slavery. In a sense, in the Garden of Eden, Adam lived, Adam and Eve lived like gods. So that was the state of man and woman before they fell into sin. That fall, that gross disobedience made us into a slave race, condemned to serve many gods, until God himself came to buy us out of slavery with the life and blood of Jesus, his only begotten son. Why do I bring all of this up? First, because stories rule the world. I'm a storyteller, I'm a writer. I believe that. Stories rule the world. Control the stories, and you control the moral decision-making machinery of human life. And I count as stories, uh, the music that we sing, stories. It's all story. And all the things that we see and we watch on television and everything else, story. Second, because this is true, Satan knows this fact full well. And has planted stories in our distant past that have enslaved people through all the centuries. Think of it this way. What was the primary form of government going back as far as we can see in ancient history? It was kingship, wasn't it? In those ancient cultures, where did the king come from? Well, he was a son of the gods, and the god himself, he was to be worshipped, wasn't he? What was the status of the people under his rule? They were slaves. They belonged to him, body and soul. Satan loves and believes in this form of government, this ruthless approach. According to the Bible, he was the ruler above all these kings. You remember this, the temptation of Jesus. Satan took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and offered to give all of them to him only if he would bow down and worship him. Do you remember reading about that? Jesus doesn't argue with Satan about his authority to give those kingdoms. Instead, he points him to the only place where worship must be centered, God the Father himself. The third reason why this Babylonian myth about our origins is important to understand is this. In these last days, I believe it is going to have more and more influence for it represents exactly how Satan and the dark lords of his beings uh, view our human race. To them, we are worthless slaves. Sadly, uh, the new religious mythology of Gaia Earth and the radical environmentalism that goes with it places human on the humans on the same level as rats and trees and weeds, and it meshes perfectly with this ancient slave mythology. I believe that at some point in the future you're going to see the slave myth reintroduced on a much wider level in this world. As we have talked about in the past in this study, and this is where things get strange. I thought they were strange already. They get stranger, in my opinion, based on the Bible and, and other evidence, both ancient and modern. The old gods were not gods at all, but fallen spiritual beings of great evil are going to appear again in material form during the end of days. These satanic beings are the ultimate legalists, and they are very territorial. They want worldwide control of their slave population. Are there people who are enslaved to them right now? Yes, there are, but they are not enslaved because they were, created, they were created to be that way. They are enslaved because of choice, the choice of Adam and Eve, and the sinful, selfish choices that we make every single day. I'll tell you that the dark lords know those people, who those people are who are in bondage to them. They know those who are slaves to sin. 
And they know those who have been liberated, bought with the blood of Jesus out of that slavery. They know the new creatures in Christ, as the New Testament calls us. We who are servants of the living God, battle lines are forming for the end. Satan is well aware that there's a strange element in human nature, one that seems to be encoded in our genes. I believe that God placed it there. As human beings, we search for and want to give our allegiance, our worship, if you will, to a king. It is an interesting fact of history that in England for many centuries it was the overwhelming belief of poor people, commoners, that the king was on their side. He was their protector who would save them from the evil of the rest of the landed nobility. They clung to that hope even when it wasn't true. They gave the king their worship. In many cultures, the king was even considered to have the power to heal physical disease. Did you know that? He could actually, by his touch and the ideas of these people, just touch us and we will be healed. Have we stopped worshiping kings? Kingship is hard to imagine in our culture, isn't it? In our culture, we don't call our kings kings. We call them presidents and celebrities, famous actors, sports stars, rock stars, even internationally known evangelists and megachurch pastors partially fill that role. We idolize our modern kings. We want to know the details of their lives. Wherever we go, I mean, if they're around, they, they get special treatment, don't they? You go, if you're a celebrity, and I've, I've known plenty of them, uh, you, know, you go to a restaurant, you get the best seats. You get expensive motorcades if you're that powerful. Locks of their hair sell on eBay. Even old gum that has been chewed can sell for hundreds of dollars. Have, did you see that? Yes, I'm dead serious. That it was a Britney Spears, the gum that she had chewed, sold on eBay for a couple hundred dollars. Yes, yes. <laughs> and he bought it right back there. I mean, and he immediately began chewing it. <laughs> we don't, we, we, we're all, we understand this you know, level of, you know, this is, this is worship. You know, we understand it on those levels that people wait for hours for just a glimpse or to get an autograph, don't they? As I said, I've known more than my share of celebrity kings and queens of our popular culture. Being with this kind of royalty in a public place is an odd experience. Uh, you get the feeling that all eyes are on your little group. Obviously, you must be someone who's important because you're with this important person. Uh, a kind of aura seems to flow out from a blessed one. And while you're with him or her, a bit of it seems to fall on you. And when you get a personal invitation from a celebrity to an exclusive event, it is particularly flattering. A couple of times, Carol and I have been invited to lavish Hollywood weddings. These were amazing events. One of them got major coverage in People magazine with helicopters flying around. The invitations alone cost a fortune. I've been to a zillion weddings. I'll tell you something for me. One wedding, you've seen one wedding, you've seen all the weddings. You know, as soon as I, I, Carol remembers the details. Carol remembers all the stuff. It's out of my head when I get out in the car. It is finished. But that's not the case with those Hollywood royalty weddings. No. They have stayed with me, especially the last one. And when you walked in the door, you knew that you were part of a very select group. As you looked around the room, you recognized more celebrities. This was impressive. That's how you knew that you were really in the inner circle. People invited to those weddings ate the finest food. They drank excellent wine. They heard outstanding music, and everyone who came received a very nice gift at the end. I assure you that there was no crashing at those wedding parties. Even though there were hundreds of people present, 
there was a carefully maintained list of guests and a serious level of security. A few weeks ago, you might have seen the, the wedding of Prince William and Catherine. The public spectacle was amazing, wasn't it? But we didn't see the private party. That must have been amazing, too. That was for a very select few. Just imagine if you had received an invitation to that wedding and that reception. How special would that have been? You would have felt a little like a king or queen yourself. You would have talked about it for the rest of your life. And probably your great-grandchildren would have talked about it. As we begin looking at the kingdom of heaven, let me tell you something. You have received a personal invitation to a wedding and a wedding feast that is infinitely greater than anything you could ever receive from the highest royalty or the most famous celebrity in this world. Turn with me to Revelation 19.1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those you who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those were called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's an amazing wedding that is going to come. And the feast that is part of it will be like no other that has ever been served in heaven or on earth. But this marriage supper is only for kings and queens. Slaves will not be invited. Why do I say that? It's only for kings and queens. Turn over a couple of pages to Revelation 22, verse 1. Revelation 22.1 says this, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Servants of the great King Jesus are kings and queens under him because it says they will reign with him forever. Slaves don't do that. That's what kings and queens do. You know what amazes me? You and I have been invited to be kings and queens. We've been invited to that great wedding feast that will begin the reign of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, over all the world. Does that sound like a fantasy to you? I think a lot of Christians view it almost like a fantasy. It doesn't feel real. That's what the Bible says is coming. We haven't had to work for an invitation. No scalpers have had to sell us invitations to that particular wedding feast. It's a free gift. Carol and I try to go to the weddings of friends, and when we get an invitation, we look at the calendar, and if at all possible, we set aside everything on that day. 
Weddings are unique. Birthdays come every year. Christmas comes every year, but a wedding. Of course, in Hollywood, they may come more frequently, but you know, <laughs> you never know. Hollywood celebrity weddings, I'm sure everyone looked forward to those weddings who was invited. We certainly did. We looked forward to them. But what if the invitation to that Hollywood celebrity wedding had come and we had sent back the message, ha, 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 your wedding is a joke. You people are losers. We wouldn't waste our time with you. Just leave us alone. How rude would that be? It's impossible to imagine, isn't it? But Jesus told a strange parable where that is exactly what happened. Turn to Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. They made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. What is he talking about in this story? He is referring to the great wedding feast of Revelation that we read about. The feast that marks the end of Satan's rule over the earth. But the story's odd, isn't it? In it, there are two groups of people who reject the invitation. First, there are those who mock it and go about their normal lives. I'd say a lot of people fall into that category, don't they? They mock the very idea of such an event. And certainly they don't view Jesus as any kind of king. In their opinion, anyone who believes such nonsense is dangerously insane, so with mockery they refuse the invitation. There's a second group. These people don't just mock the invitation, they abuse and kill the messengers who brought it. There are many people like that today, aren't there? Even if they haven't killed the messengers, they'd like to if they could. And there are Christians around the world this day who have been killed because they brought the invitation to those who refused it. But specifically, who was Jesus referring to at that moment in history, in his story? First, he was talking about his own people, the Jews, who were refusing his invitation at that time. Tragically, so many of them continue to refuse that invitation to this very day. In particular, he was talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. He proclaimed that they rejected him. They, they became part of a long and evil tradition of religious leaders and others who had rejected the call of God through his prophets during the days of the Old Testament, right down to John the Baptist. According to the parable, because the king's own people rejected the invitation, he sent his messengers out into the highways to collect any one of the rabble who were out there who might be willing to come. If you're a Gentile believer in Jesus, you're part of that group right along with me. We're part of that rabble that he brought right in and sat down at the tables. So as the passage states, the hall was filled with people, both good and bad, nice people and terrible people. That seems strange too, doesn't it? Does it mean that no matter what you are like, you can just wander into the great wedding feast of Revelation? But Jesus' story doesn't stop there, does it? Let's look again at Matthew 22. Look down at verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the message is clear. It is enough simply to have received an invitation. You have to be prepared for the event. You have to have a wedding garment. Now at this foundational moment, in the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth, you can't just wander in wearing your old, dirty clothes. The book of Revelation speaks a number of, in a number of places about white, clean garments. Let's look at several of those passages. The first is found in what are known as the letters to the seven churches. These are letters from Jesus to the churches of Asia Minor, that is the modern-day Turkey. We're going to read just a portion of the letter to the church of Sardis, Revelation 3, verse 4. You have a few names, Jesus says, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The next mention of garments like this is found in the letter of the church of Laodicea. Turn over to Revelation 3, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eye, eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him, and he with me. To him overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, ruling, the kings are going to rule. Now turn to Revelation 7, verse 9. We're out of the letters to the seven churches here, but once again it's about white garments. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the, the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living in fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. One last passage. Turn to Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine lemon, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth was a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the, the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, 
King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Jesus' parable, the garment that he is referring to is the same white robe from the book of Revelation. The Greek word for the, this word that, is, that we use as robe is the word stole. From it we get the word stole. It's a long fitting gown. And in Jesus' day, a stole was a mark of dignity. It's strange that in our day we have lost an understanding of the concept of dignity. Now, we don't really know what that word means anymore, do we? To us, it may be kind of synonymous with stuffy, you know, dignified and pompous, that sort of thing. What is dignity? Dignity is the quality of being worthy of esteem or respect. First of all, is viewing yourself with proper esteem and respect. That's not arrogance or pride. Do you notice that there is very little self-respect today? Even among people who are extremely successful, certainly in my experience in Hollywood, that's been the case. You could look inside their souls, they have the self-respect of slaves. You don't respect yourself. You don't respect anyone else. And that's true for most of us, isn't it? Left to ourselves, we have little dignity, little self-respect, little esteem. And that is exactly where Satan wants us to remain. We have no self-respect, no dignity. It is easy for him to keep us in the chains of sin. What does self-respect, what does dignity, where does it come from? Strangely, it begins with honesty about our condition. We are slaves to sin. And so often we're depressed, we're angry, we're unfulfilled, we're unhappy. That's the human condition, and that's how slaves feel. Realizing this, we want to be free, and the only way is repentance. The Bible says that those who want white robes need to wash them. That means we need to repent. How does that work? We begin by realizing that we are made in the image of God. And we are meant to rule in his creation. We've fallen from that high place into utter degradation and slavery. We've sold ourselves and we were bound in chains. Seeing that reality, we humble ourselves. We admit our terrible condition. We don't justify it. We don't try to pretend that everything's all right. You know, we're not going and learning how to cope with our chains. We're guilty and we deserve the condition that we're in. We admit that we are powerless to get free on our own. But all praise to God, we realize something else. We are so valuable to him that he bought us from the slave market of evil. The most terrible and wonderful price that could be paid, the life and blood of his son. In this amazing reality, we accept that sacrifice. We confess our sins and turn away from them. That's what repentance is, isn't it? Turning away. Instantly our souls are washed clean in Jesus' blood. That is how we get our white wedding garments. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All of us fall somewhere in that list of equally enslaved, don't we? For every one of us, sin has brought a terrible loss of self-respect and dignity. But in Jesus, we are transformed. Revelation 1.5 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, in 1 Corinthians, St. Paul uses an old-fashioned word that you almost never hear anymore. That word is sanctification. He says we have been sanctified. It means to be made holy, to be cleansed, to be set apart. 
as our sin has been washed away, we have been made perfectly unique and sinless new creatures. In God's eyes, we have the unique sinlessness of Jesus himself. Does that mean we never sin again in this world? I, w I wish it did mean that, but it doesn't. Because of sanctification, our eternal position before God is sinless. But we won't experience the fullness of that until we go to be with him. This setting apart, this being made holy, takes place both instantaneously and eternally when we first repent and ask Jesus to be the Savior of our souls. But understand something. This process of sanctification is a process that goes on throughout our lives as well. And we are meant to participate in that process by making right, righteous choices. God empowers us to do this through his Holy Spirit. Is it increasingly true of you that you are known for making right, righteous choices? Is that what you're known for? That's what God wants from each of us. Some of us think that we prayed a prayer a long time ago asking for salvation. That was all there was to it. Then we went out and we lived like hell ever since. And we don't think it matters. We just mumble a quick sorry to God and go back to being sin slaves. We think there's no way out. Some of us have given up. Maybe we've tried to change and we can't. It hasn't worked. Maybe we've given up and now you know, we're, we spend most of our time just polishing our chains so we look good with our friends. Or maybe we just, we're just hellishly lazy. That's usually my problem. I have a feeling that maybe that was the situation of the man in the dirty clothes in Jesus' story. Your freedom and dignity matter to God. He has made a way for you to have the power to make righteous choices. We'll talk much more about that, about that process in the studies to come. But the question tonight is, what do your wedding clothes look like right now? And do you care? In the parable, this man who does not have clean wedding garments is manifesting that his life has not really been transformed. He is unworthy to be at the feast. Maybe he thought he was worthy. Maybe he didn't think it mattered what he wore. Maybe he didn't think it mattered what his soul really looked like. I think many people today believe that they can be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, members of the body of Christ, the church, which is the manifestation of that kingdom in this, on this world, and just keep on living and sinning any way they want without any sense of real guilt or an eternal transformation. There are a lot of people in the church like that right now. The great tragedy is that so often the church just lets them walk on blindly, straight into destruction. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, your sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus. You have dignity, worth, and self-respect that go beyond anything in this world. Don't let that be stolen from you. How will it be stolen when we choose to live by the values of the kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of heaven? You know, there are many um, hellishly destructive things about the kingdom of Hollywood. I've spent a lot of time in Hollywood over many years in the past. You know, I love Hollywood. It's, in a sense, it's my home, but I know what this, this business and this industry is like. One of the worst of those destructive values is in this kingdom, our value as people is so completely tied to success as defined by the great lords of darkness that rule here. I'll tell you something very strongly. In my life, I've seen those dark, uh, dark lords rule in so many places in this business. What they offer is a soft, sophisticated system of slavery and degradation. And as horrible as it is today, the chains of that degradation weigh down on so many of us who call ourselves Christians in this industry. We are not successful by Satan's definition. We feel worthless. And when we are successful, it is never enough. Could it get worse than this? 
When we are enslaved under these chains, we are reluctant to be with people whom we consider to be losers and failures. We want to be with positive, successful people. It's as though we think their failure might rub off on us. We fear the hunger and desperation of failing people. It makes us uncomfortable. In the past, as an executive producer and showrunner in television, I've had many meetings with people who were failing. Maybe they had been successful once. Usually they had been. They were on their way down now. And though they tried to cover it, you could sense their fear and their desperation. You could sense their hunger. They were in deep need. Oh, if I could just get another writing assignment, I desperately need it in order to keep my health insurance going. Oh, I've known, I've been there many times to see people like that. Years ago, I was represented by ICM. Uh, my agent, in a moment of great candor, you don't get those moments very often from an agent, told me that the way agents in Hollywood view clients. He said, a client is like an elevator. You get on and ride him when he's on the way up, and you get off fast when he starts going down. At the time, my elevator was on its way up. It wasn't long before it started going the other direction. Uh, but this definition of success and self-worth that rules in Hollywood is designed to destroy your true self-worth and your dignity. It's designed that way, my friends. And you have to choose which kingdom and which definition of success will govern your life. Which one will you worship? Which one will you serve? And that is exactly what you are going to do. Worship and serve, whether you are successful in Hollywood or not, whether you even work in Hollywood or not. This is the same choice that was given to Jesus by Satan when he took him to the top of the mountain and showed him the kingdoms of this world. In my opinion, one of the reasons that we Christians as a group have been so amazingly unsuccessful in Hollywood is because there is no difference between us and the lost and wandering people who are slaves here. There's no real difference between us and the very people that Jesus set us to seek and to save in his name. And this is true of the church across America, in my opinion. Yes, we are so emergent, we are so seeker-sensitive that we are ciphers as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. If Jesus were physically in Hollywood, who would he spend most of his time with? Would he go to a wonderful Christian media conference? I've spoken with several myself. Would he be in attendance there where those of us who sort of would be moderately successful tried to share our, our deep secrets with those who were struggling their way up? Would that be where he would be? You know, I came to the conclusion probably not. I have an idea that what he would do would be that he would set up his own Jesus media conference. And the only ones allowed in would be those of us who admit we are losers and failures. <laughs> you know, we're, we have to admit before at the door that we're so sunk deep into the pit. We are, our career is so completely gone. We are so depressed. Things are so horrible. There's no one who can help us but Jesus. That's what he would want. Those are the people Jesus wants to meet and turn into kings and queens forever. So if that's who you are tonight, if you feel sort of worthless on those levels, if you see this monstrous industry that's in front of you, take heart, my friends. It's all a paper tiger. It really is going to go down in dust. And it will be the humble who inherit the earth. It's time for the church in Hollywood and across America, America to repent and wash our filthy robes because the wedding feast is coming. Is the church today looking forward to that event? 
the end of the book of Joshua, the great little warrior is about to die. He calls the people together and gives them the clearest possible statement of their situation. It's found in Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is the challenge to Christians in Hollywood. Make no mistake about it. The same great lords of darkness that enslaved the Amorites and the Babylonians have not died. They still are very active in this world. Yes, the very same ones who led the pop culture of the Canaanites and others to sacrifice their children to idols, those very same dark lords are at work in 21st century popular culture. I believe that very much. Their view of you is the same as it was thousands of years ago. You filthy slave, forget the dream of freedom. Serve the gods that own you. Eat the rotten crusts of pleasure that they throw on the floor in front of you. Fear to disobey them and their human representatives, both in this industry and the rest of the world. Make no mistake about it, their human representatives are in Hollywood right now. How can you recognize them? They love to control others through fear. They tempt others to make destructive personal decisions. They take joy when their actions cause frustration and rage. They delight in the moral weaknesses and failures of those they lead. They are the true spiritual vampires who suck the life out of the lost souls who look around them. These people are doomed. Do you think I'm exaggerating in my descriptions, those of you who are young and looking at the business in front of you? Well, if you think so, it means you have not worked very long or very deeply in Hollywood. I'll tell you something. I have known and worked for a number of these people. Not for long, but long enough. And I know many others who have worked for them. Let me tell you, I'm a, I'm a life member of the Writers Guild, for pity's sake. You go to a Writers Guild strike meeting, and I will, you will hear some of the most angry human beings on the face of this earth. And I've been to a number of strike meetings over years. These people stand up, and out of them comes pain and rage and anger. They're making tons of money, a lot of them. They're unbelievably unhappy. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons is that they are experiencing this kind of representative of the lords of darkness. Their lives are made into living hells. I understand it. How do we deal with this? The only way is in the strength of the Lord without fear with the quiet certainty that you are a king or a queen of heaven. You are an ambassador of the great king himself. No matter how lowly your position might be in this world right now, you're under his protection. No matter what such people may do to you, it will work for your good in the end. And vengeance belongs to him. Pray blessing on them. You know, I'll tell you something. Some of the worst people I've known, I've, I've actually developed a sense of joy about praying blessing on those people and the Lord's presence there in their lives. I really pray for it seriously. Only with that assurance that you are truly one of his kings or queens and you stand against the powerful corruption that is in this world. You can stand against it and say, no, this I will not do. 
This I will not allow. And Christians are falling and unable to say those words in this industry all the time right now. Until we as Christians have that quiet fearlessness, that sense of security in the Lord as a group, we will continue to fail here. That doesn't mean that some individuals won't experience success in the short term. It means that our great mission, the great mission of the church, which must be carried out in unity, will fail. The message of Jesus, his great message of the kingdom of heaven, is about setting the slaves free. I have seen Christians come to Hollywood, people who have been set free, and step by step their choices make them into slaves again. I've watched this take place over the decades of my own experience in this industry. It is the thing that absolutely makes me angriest. The book of Galatians is written to such people. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, beginning with verse 1, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which were by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? The bondage of legalism comes in many forms. Hollywood loves to look at the legalism of religious fundamentalist groups, and it mocks it in their songs and stories. I will tell you that there's a legalism in this industry that is so lockstep and rigid it makes religious fundamentalism look like freedom. The deeper you go into the business, the more quickly you learn that if you want to succeed, you'd better live by the unwritten commandments of the power elite here. You'd better believe as they do, value what they value, and make the choices they make. And if you don't agree with it, you better at least be very quiet. Within that structure is plenty of moral flexibility to eternally destroy yourself. God help us. Christians are falling into deathly legalism here in Hollywood, just as they did in ancient Galatia. But the ancient Galatians had more of an excuse than we do. They didn't have any New Testament. They only had a few letters here and there. Most of them had grown up in the overwhelming pagan religious system of Greece. And they were there. They had been to the giant temples and their sacrifices, their huge celebrations. So when they became Christians, they brought with them all those old ways of thinking and worshiping. A lying story was built into their souls. At all costs, we must do whatever is necessary to appease the gods if we want success. We must follow the rules. When false teachers arrived, bringing a new legalism, it was easy to fall back into the old patterns. We as Christians in Hollywood don't have such an excuse. There is a deep pagan legalism very much alive in this industry. That pagan legalism is based on the worship of a false god, and that false god is self. The great god self is the god of slaves. So, choose you this day whom you will serve. Let's wash our garments, because there's a great feast coming. Thanks for listening. In the middle of the growing darkness, your life can be filled with the light and love of Jesus Christ. But is it? If I can be of help to you, write to me, please. My email is colemanluck at gmail.com. Until next time, history had a beginning, and it will have an end. Some will be ready, but most will not.